I have the tremendous privilege of taking a moment to open God's word with you. Can you believe it? A whole semester devoted to studying the person and work of Christ. Awe-inspiring. I found Jesus Christ more awe-inspiring than I did in August when we begun. This study has been rich and good and purifying for my own heart. It's my prayer that this study and that this adoration of Christ wouldn't end now, but that this would have been good practice for us, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity. That's what we're going to be doing in heaven, isn't it? Worshiping Christ. Somebody say amen. Amen. That's what we will be doing for eternity is adoring and worshiping the person of Jesus Christ. And for me, this semester has in measure been a taste of that, just a glimpse of what it might be like to love and adore Christ for all of eternity. Uh, Tonight will be a little bit shorter message. I know some of you are eager to parade your ugly sweaters around and do a little dance. Others of you are terrified at the prospect. That would be one of those. It's, uh, I don't know what the judges do, but maybe about 50% ugliness of the sweater and maybe 50% parading of the sweater. I know we're all eager to get to that, uh, but about a shorter message here, and if I can have all your attention for these final words, for this final message, in fact, I'd say this, it's been one of my greatest privileges over these four or five years to open God's word with you and to learn from it with you and to preach it to you. Uh, Tonight, my last sermon is about two things that I find myself particularly impassioned about. Tonight, I want to take the joy of wrapping up our series in in a way that may seem kind of peculiar at first, but I want to assure you is essential to part of our series in adoring, understanding, and worshiping Christ. This Bible, I don't have to tell you, is a book that contains directives on many relationships, doesn't it? Take this smattering, for example, Christian to Christian. We spent a whole semester on that, uh, the one another's of Scripture. Christian to non-Christian, we spent a whole semester on that, called ambassadors. How do we become fishers of men? Believer to God, unbeliever to God, God to unbeliever, God to believer, slave to master, or we might say employee to employer, at least it has implications there, or employer to employee. Children to parents, parents to children, younger to older, older to younger, citizen to government, church leaders to flock, and flock to church leaders. One that I've found, though, particularly appealing to college students is this relationship. Husband and wife. Husband and bride. There are two increasing ways in our era, Christian, for you and I to shine as lights in dark places. Two places are getting progressively darker in America in our age and farther and farther away from God's plan. Those areas are this, marriage and the church. Marriage and the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at a doctrine and a series of, or a passage of scripture here. It's going to shine bright light on both of these things. Our text in wonderful form tonight describes how the Christian wife, the Christian husband ought to live towards each other and how every believer 
every believer, not just Christian husband and wife, should understand and think about Christ's church. So grab your outline, even if you don't use it or write on it, it might be helpful for you to look at and follow along in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be their husbands, uh, ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself. Let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Pause with me for prayer now. Lord, make the book live to us. These words written so long ago to the believers at Ephesus help us to understand them well just as they were written, and may they fall afresh on our ears tonight. May we be gripped by your word. Give us insight, enlighten our minds, humble our hearts, make us ready and quick to receive it. And Lord, exalt yourself through the preaching of your word this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It bears reminding you as we seek to understand our text well tonight that there are no spiritual or moral distinctions to be drawn between Christians. Galatians 3.28 comes to mind. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, John MacArthur says it well this way. There are no classifications of Christians. Every believer in Jesus Christ has the exact same salvation the same standing before God, the same divine nature and resources, the same divine promises and inheritance. No distinction in privileges or in persons, but there is, however, distinct and beautiful roles that God has given us to excel in in this life. The first we uncover in our text here, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives submitting their husbands, among many things, is a profound witness to unbelieving husbands. You might remember 1 Peter 3, 1, where it talks about how a woman should act, a wife should act with her unbelieving husband. And you remember what it says? That he might be one, what it is? Without a word by her pure and chaste conduct. It's a witness to an unbelieving world. Titus 2, 5, to be self-controlled, the instruction to the wife pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled, that the word of God may not be dishonored or blasphemed. 
In other words, by the way a Christian wife lives, she can either extol and lift up the word of God or revile it, abuse it, and even, get this, blaspheme it. The positive side of this would be to say that a, word, a Christian wife can shine brightly and adorn the doctrine of Christ by living in a way that aligns herself with the word of God. Self-controlled and pure, that's a weighty and grave privilege and one that dare not be taken lightly. This is not primarily a sermon tonight on being a Christian wife or being a worker at home, but I do want to pause just for a second to say something that I don't think can be said enough in our age, and such an age where this rubs raw and chafes so hard against the philosophy of the world. Let me say this. It's been the experience, I could say, both from my wife and her close friends and also from what we can clearly understand in Scripture, that making disciples at home, that serving, supporting, and submitting to her husband gives them leagues more joy and sense of accomplishment than climbing to the top of the corporate ladder. And as I say that, I recognize that that is so backwards from what we hear. And yet it's true, both in the word of God and by experience. And Paul doesn't leave us in his kindness without reason for this submission. You can nod in agreement with that statement. You can scoff in frustration. You can grumble because it hasn't happened yet in your life. Or, Christian woman, I might humbly ask you to prepare your heart, whether God ever grants you that privilege in marriage or he grants you the privilege of singleness. Begin to practice now that submission to authority in your life, whether it be church leaders or government or even to Christ. Paul gives the reason for this submission. We would ask the question, why? Why submit? Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Paul does something that we're going to continue to see again and again in our text. He relates the why of the command to the church. Over and over again, Paul will give a command, and then he'll explain it using the church. His reason is wrapped up mysteriously in the church's relationship to Christ in this text. And like Christ, the husband gives direction and provision. This idea of headship is expressed twice elsewhere in Ephesians. First is Ephesians 1, 22. That talks about direction and leadership and headship. The other is Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. You can look at those on your own. That talks more about provision and growth and supply. If you're in a community group, you probably remember working through chapter 1 of Colossians this semester where it says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that he himself might to have come to have first place in everything. If that's the what and the why, what about the How? Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How should they submit in everything to their husbands? We talk and hear a lot about submission, but what does submission entail and what, frankly, does it look like? I, th I think that John Piper is helpful here as I read and, and studied this week in his book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He instructs Husbands to love their wives in explaining this text, he says the basic meaning of submission would be 
recognize and honor the greater responsibility of your husband to supply protection and sustenance. Be disposed to yield to his authority in Christ and be inclined to follow his leadership. That's a beautiful thing. When it's done in harmony and when it works together with God's word and what we're about to read next, husbands, love your wives. Paul supplies husbands their duties with these four simple but profound words. Husbands, love your wives. A simple statement to understand. A most difficult proclamation to obey. The idea of love itself warrants not just another sermon series, but a lifelong understanding, study, and submitting to. We could never fully grasp or come to terms with what it means to love someone as Christ does, and yet... Here's the instruction. Husbands, love your wives. This command to love, though only four words, is one of the most profound and punch-packing, weight-filled commands given to the husband in Scripture. Here's a statement so simple to understand that, believe it or not, I think my two-year-old could even begin to get a grasp on it. Here is a command so difficult to obey that no one has ever done it. That is, save one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ has fulfilled this perfectly. He has loved his bride in perfect purity and excellence. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep I don't have to tell you, but I will, that Christ's example of sacrificial love is the perfect and ultimate and supreme example for the Christian husband. And I want to remind you, I want to tell you perhaps for the first time in you, this is more than just physical sacrifice. I know many of Prince Charming who would gladly throw themselves <laughs> in front of a bus for their fair lady and give their physical lives. This command goes deeper. Obeying the sacrificial service and leadership of Christ dives into every area of sacrifice, not merely giving physical lives, but giving ourselves emotionally, spiritually, and totally to service and love of our wives. Jesus explains it well to his disciples in Luke 22, verse 26 through 27. He says, but not so with you. He's contrasting the worldly type of leadership and rulership and headship that the disciples would have been exposed to in Pontius Pilate and Herod and the leaders of the day. And he says, not so with you, but let him who is the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader, the leader, the leader as the servant. I am among you as the one who serves, he says. Jesus is our example, Christian husband, Christian man, training and desiring to be a husband. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. This is our example. Christ is our prize and our model in this way, in every way, but particularly for the husband here. Why does Christ give himself up for the church? Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ died 
that he might set his church apart for holy use, honorable use. He wants his church to be sanctified. This has been done in a once and for all sense. The bride has been washed and is clean and is pure. But we in the church and the church as a whole now labors to make our practice or the church's practice match her position in Christ. Paul returns to or from his illustration of marriage to remind the reader in a parallel way to take care of themselves. In the same way that they take care of themselves to take care of their wives as the husband. In the same way husbands should love their wives, verse 28, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The problem, of course, you know, is not that we love ourselves too little. It's that we love ourselves too much. Let me take a break from what I've written here to tell you a story about when I was falfing. That's what they call it, right? You get the falf this. And I was walking with a dear friend, a guy I'd made an appointment with I hadn't seen in quite some time. I'd grown up with, and he was here, and he was going to a different church. and <clears throat> He was involved in some different things, and... Um, I said, what are you learning? And he said, well, I've been learning a lot about relationships. They're teaching on a relationship series right now. And, and I said, well, tell me what you're learning. I'm interested to know. He was just beginning to see a young lady. And he said, well, he said, they've been telling me that I don't love myself enough. And so I, before I can love someone else, I really need to learn to love myself more. And let me just tell you that that's not what this text says. And... Uh, that's not our problem, is it? No, we have no trouble taking care of ourselves. At least most of us don't. Uh, some of you kind of walk in here, had a grand cracker and a Cheez-It to eat for lunch today. Some of us really struggle to take care of ourselves. I, I was there, I know. I'm not naming any names, but most of us, <laughs> most of us, this comes naturally to everyone's looking around like, not me, right? Most of us, this comes fairly natural to. We take care of ourselves. It's basic and natural. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. That same way we have to love one another. Christian husband, love your Christian wife. Why? Why does Christ nourish us? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. And then verse 31, which is a transition where... Paul takes his cards that he's been holding and describing and talking to us about, and he lays them down. He brings in Old Testament scripture to support and bolster his point, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, he quotes here. He relates it again to the church. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's mystery. What do we do with the word mystery, this idea of mystery? Well, you may know that the mystery is something that was hidden in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints didn't fully understand it or comprehend it in that dispensation, in that covenant, but it's been revealed now. It's been made clear to the New Testament saints and to us. And friends, look at me. Do not miss this. There's more to this text. There's more to this idea, Paul says, than meets the eye. The mystery has been unveiled, and don't miss it. Get this. Get this. 
the pattern for the church did not come from marriage. The pattern for marriage came from the church. It's not that the pattern for the church in Christ was borrowed for some prior formula. No, just the opposite. Marriage, get this, was created to model and picture the ultimate marriage, the perfect marriage between Christ and the church. The reason marriage was created was to picture Christ in the church. Marriage, wonderful as it is, good as it is, it's not an end in itself. No, it's a means, a means to point to something much larger, much more splendid, much more pure, much more beautiful than itself. It's the picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah who became the lamb of God who laid his life down for a bride that did not even love him, that despised and rejected him. And he's wooed her and won her over in conversion. This is the picture we see in the New Testament. This is the true and real picture of marriage. I'll read to you something from a book by Joshua Harris on why church matters. He says, one word picture seems most striking of all as he's talking about the word pictures of the church in the New Testament. It helps us see not only God's purpose for us, the church, but the depth of his love and commitment to our well-being. Paul tells us that Christ views the church like a bridegroom sees his bride. That Jesus calls the church his bride may never have had much meaning for me. That is, until my wedding day. I can't recall the thoughts and emotions as I watch Shannon walk down the aisle, but in the midst of my elation, I distinctly remember being struck by the thought that I was being given the tiniest glimpse of how Christ feels about all of us, his followers. I mean, wow, <laughs> right? To think about how Christ loves his church. What a profound thing. What a wonderful thing. What a deep and true and real and gripping truth. Anyone who's encountered this wedding scene, even in part, knows. I remember crying almost against my will when Brooke came down the aisle. I was struck by her and am still struck by her. And that's a fraction of the picture and the illustration that Christ gives us. He loves his bride. He cares for his bride. This is a parable, if you will, to match all parables. This is an illustration to match all illustrations. This illustration, of course, binds all marriages in all times and all cultures, regardless of time or age or period or season or epoch, to the ultimate model and picture of Christ and his bride. Look, friends, as you think about this, you begin to understand, don't you, the implications of tampering with the picture of marriage? Sins like bestiality, homosexuality, polygamy, sex outside of marriage pervert this pure and holy picture of something bigger than itself. Listen, when you mess with marriage, you mess with something big. You mess with something bigger than the picture of marriage itself. You mess with Christ in the church. 
Friends, the doctrine of church, the bride of Christ, it is, listen to me, it's crucial for a right practice of Christianity. Uh, just imagine this. Someone walks up. <laughs> imagine you or someone else walking up to an older man and saying, you know what, I really appreciate you, love you, uh, just want to spend time with you, think you're great, want you to mentor me, uh, wonder if I could even move in and maybe live with you just because you're such a wonderful person. But your wife, I could really take her or leave her. Eh, I don't really like her. Pretty obvious her imperfections. Wouldn't fly for a minute, would it? Not for a minute, but listen to me. When we misunderstand, when we misappropriate, and when we neglect Christ's bride, that's what you and I do. And it's tragic. I believe that we offend Christ and we display our ignorance when we say things like, these mountains are my church. It's foolishness. Christ did not die for mountains. He died, listen to me, he died for his blood-bought believers. He died for you and I, and let it be said and let it be known, he loves his bride. Do you think for a moment that Christ is enthralled with something that he opened his mouth and created, like mountains or trees or rocks? It's irrational. It's garbage. And we must conform our thinking. I say our, because this has been a process for me. We must, friends, conform our thinking, our doctrine to what we see in the Word. He died. He died for you and I. His special creation to unite us in an indissolvable body for all of eternity that he's promised to sustain, that he's promised to build up and to purify and to grow and that ought to live in a way that's pleasing to him all the way, all the way until this marriage is consummated in his second coming. See, verse 33, the summary, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband Paul gives this summary statement, summarizes verse 28, and the second part summarizes verse 22. Let me just give you some personal testimony of this impact in my life. I want to be honest with you uh, on why I'm so impassioned about this, on the impact it's had in my own life, because as I said, when I say we, I speak of myself as once having misunderstood the church. I received an email from a pastor uh, grace before I was on staff here. In fact, I was in college at MSU. That really helped firm up and fuel a shift in my thinking uh, that had begun probably only a year prior. I couldn't remember when that email was sent, so I looked it up on my old email address this week. Early spring of 2011, February, my last semester at college, I, Six months before I would come on staff here, less than six months before I would come on staff here at Grace. Pastor, this pastor had the gumption to challenge everything I believed about the church with one little email. And I shot back a defense and a little bit disgusted as I tried to defend myself and my ministry. 
But let me tell you, next to discovering or God revealing and helping me understand the doctrines of grace, that is things like God chose us and elected us before the foundations of the earth, that is that I am totally ruled and overtaken by sin before Christ captures me, saves me, that is that from start to finish, salvation was totally an undeserved work of sovereign grace. Those doctrines of grace and captured me and changed my heart and gave me direction profoundly in my life. But next to that, next to that, this doctrine has caused perhaps both the, the biggest paradigm shift for me in my Christian life. I don't think that's an overstatement for one second. And I'm honored to get to announce to you tonight that this breathtaking doctrine, that this life-altering truth is what you'll be devoting spring 2016 to. A study and an understanding and a coming to terms with and a grasping and a sinking your teeth into the doctrine of Christ's bride, the church. Things like, how is the church born? How does the church get its start? Things like, what do I look for in a church? Things like, how does the church deal with sin and its members? These are twin doctrines. I hope you understand they're married. <laughs> that is Christ in the church. The groom in Christ, the wonderful Lamb of God that we have been so privileged to spend a semester to sing about, to adore, and to fall down in worship. That and his beautiful bride of Christ, the church. Some, to be sure, in our time and down through history have gone too far. They've worshipped the church. They've misunderstood the church. They've misunderstood the marriage of Christ and his headship. They've perverted the doctrine of the church into uh, taking and stealing away from Christ's headship and simply worshipping the church. They've misplaced the church's role. But listen, more in our age... Many more in our age have cast aside in disgust, in misunderstanding, and in apathy the husband and his bride. Inseparable, indissolvable. It's fitting that next semester will be given to the life-changing, to the generation-altering doctrine of the church because it matches. It matches so well with what Christ loves and adores. This is not, friends, this is not your grandfather's theology. This is life-altering, edge-of-your-seat, real truth that compels the most boresome Christian mind to the throne room of grace in gratitude. This is Christianity 101. And I do not know how you could not want to be a part of it. I envy you as you study it. Listen to me. I know most of you well enough to know that you want to be more like Christ. Do you not have an insatiable desire to be more like Christ? Do you not feel the wrestle in your soul over the hideousness of sin and long to be free of it? Long to be sanctified and built up and conformed to the image of Christ that you may walk in the way that he walks, that burning desire in your soul to put off sin and to put on righteousness. I want to be more like Christ, and I know that you do too. Can I suggest to you that a great place to start is to begin to pray to God that he would help you love the same things that Christ loves? 
Can I suggest to you that a great place to start with that is the church? Christ's affection, beloved, it's not dull. It's not stagnant. No, his affection is real. It's deep. It's gripping. It's permanent. So much more than the human groom on his wedding day. No, Christ's love is filled with fire. It's filled with passion and sacrifice. Make no mistake, friend. Christ loves his bride. And he will see her in her proper place. He will see her sanctified and built up and purified and loved and adorned. And friends, if we have learned to adore Christ this semester, and I trust that you have, let us learn to adore, to respect, and to love his bride this spring. Let us pray. God, help us. How we long to to be more like you, how our souls are stirred with a desire to, to walk like you walk, to be more humble, to be more godly, to be more like you, and how our souls are stirred through your word to want to love the things that you love. And we know, we see clearly demonstrated in Ephesians 5 that you love, you love your bride. And Lord, help us to love, therefore, the things that you love. Help us to set our affections in the same ways. No, not to worship the church, but to love her, to learn about her, uh, to understand our proper place in her. Or it's my prayer that you would compel these men and women to a lifetime of faithful and fruitful ministry, starting, no, not starting, continuing with and being built up in the doctrine of your bride. May that be true until you come back for your bride. Oh, how we long for that, to, that day to come. Until then, Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us pressing on and incline our hearts towards your church, we pray. In the groom's name, amen.